1 Corinthians 13. We've been working our way section by section through 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings. And we've come to the place now uh, where we've really reached the pinnacle of the, the fourth major section of the book uh, here in chapter 13. And you'll see when we begin to read, this passage is probably going to be familiar to most of you and for good reason. But it actually begins just a few words before the beginning of the chapter because at the end of chapter 12, Paul is speaking about spiritual gifts and their use when the church gathers. And he says in chapter 12, verse 31, the last verse of chapter 12, earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. What is the more excellent way? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for sharing yourself with us. Thank you for giving your son for us. Thank you for giving us your name. For welcoming us as sons and daughters into your family. Lord, this morning we are mindful of the fact that we live in a world that really needs that. We live in a world that is just rife with evil, wickedness, 
hatred, violence. We think of our neighbors across the world in Israel and how many have died already and how the plans, the cold-blooded, murderous plans of evil men have been carried out against all sorts of people indiscriminately and how in order to root them out, many more will have to die. And we just cry out to you and say, how long is this going to go on, Father? And we know that you allow these things because you're mercifully allowing us time to turn from our sin and repent and turn to Christ. And we thank you for that, but Father, we, we pray for more of your mercy, more of your love to be felt and known in this room and around the world. Lord, this morning we want to thank you for the ministry of International Commission, the organization of which Pastor Guy is a part, and as they celebrate uh, 50 years and millions of professions of faith, we rejoice with them. We thank you for them, and we ask that you would continue to give Pastor Guy specifically and the rest of the folks in that organization, uh, generally speaking, uh, many more opportunities to take the gospel even further than they have in the past. Lord, I pray that as the, the various ministers who come from all over the world are spread uh, across this region and, and ministering in various churches, that you would grant them freedom to preach the word with power, even though many of them are preaching in, their, in a second language. They don't speak English as their primary language. And I just pray that you'd give them the freedom and that your spirit would move powerfully and that you would draw souls to yourself through their ministry today and that you would do the same thing here in this room. Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've ever worked in an office building, you're probably familiar with the almost omnipresent signs and written announcements scribbled on Xerox paper and scotch tape to almost every vertical surface of the building. Here's one you've probably seen. If you take the last cup, it's your responsibility to brew another pot taped above the coffee machine. Items must be dated or they will be thrown away. Fastened to the refrigerator door on parchment-like paper, yellow with age and torn at the corners. Mandatory in-person meeting this Thursday at 11 a.m. in the second floor conference room. All department associates must attend. Just below the buzzing fluorescent lights on the bathroom mirror. These signs are everywhere. You know what I'm saying? They're, and they're just shouting at you in capital letters, do this, do that, don't do that. These signs are everywhere. Uh, by the way, I doubt that they have these signs taped up in the executive break room on the top floor. It's just the worker bees that are subjected to these indignities. Well, I had grown accustomed to these signs to the point where I almost no longer saw them in my own job. They had faded into the landscape like the coffee stains and chewing gum ground into the dingy carpet we all had to walk on. But one day, as I was heading to the stairwell after a long day of WebEx meetings, that was before Zoom. 
emails, Excel documents, a paper sign caught my eye. It was different from usual. Just a white piece of paper neatly tacked to a cubicle wall, and in the center, in capital letters, a three-word sentence. Love is love. Now, that was seven or eight years ago, and I thought, what is that? Uh, What do you mean love is love? Apples are apples. Chairs are chairs. What are you saying? Of course love is love. But by now, pretty much everybody in this room has an idea of what's being communicated by a sign like that. Love is love. Like you're a guy and you love your wife. Great. You're a gal and you love your boyfriend. Great. You're a guy and you want to marry a guy. Great. Love is love. Who am I to say you're wrong? Love is whatever you say it is. As long as you're being real, as long as you're being authentically you, the pure pursuit and expression of your deepest desires is love. Well, do you agree with that? See, the truth is, for a Christian, love, for for anybody that takes the Bible seriously as the Word of God, it's obvious that love is not whatever we define it to be, nor is it merely a, a feeling of romantic attraction. I mean, sometimes we use it in that way, but we all understand that real love is deeper than that. It's more than that. No, it's something that God defines in the pages of the Bible. It's something that God ultimately, perfectly exemplifies in his own mighty acts and attributes. God is love, we're told in 1 John. Think about how few things that said about God. God is love. We're not told God is very many things, but we are told that God is love. Love is one of those ideas that we understand intuitively, but we have a hard time explaining. So let me just start today by giving us a really simple, I think, memorable definition that we'll unpack together as we go along. What is love? Here's just a really simple definition you can write down. You probably have to chew on it for a little bit, but I think it'll be easy to remember. What is love? Love is the active affection of identity with another. Love is the active affection of identity with another. Now think about how the passage we read a few minutes ago, earlier in the service, plays out. Love your neighbor, how? As yourself, right? You already value yourself. You think your thoughts are valid and correct. You take care of your body. You give it what it wants. You are patient with yourself. You give yourself the benefit of the doubt. You see things from your perspective. Even if you kind of hate yourself, you, in a sense, love yourself anyway because you are You're sympathetic toward yourself. And even if things are not going well, you think, self, you deserve better than this. Well, love is treating somebody like you would want yourself to be treated. It's the active affection of identity with another. Think about the love of God going back to uh, eternity past. Jesus himself pulls back the curtain on the relationship that he had with his father before the foundation of the world in John chapter 5. This is what Jesus says. The son 
can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. What is love? It's the perfect Father sharing himself with the perfect Son. Later, Jesus says the Father uh, has life in himself, and he's granted the Son to have life in himself. In other words, you've got two persons, but they love each other. They are one with one another. So from eternity past, the Father and the Son have carried this active affection of identity with one another. They're like, they're not just you and me, they're us and we. What is love? It's when, like when the brother hears somebody disrespect his sister and he takes it personally because he doesn't think of him and his sister as two independent people. He thinks of him and his sister as one family, one entity. So if you put her down, you're putting me down. That's love. It's like when two guys are in a foxhole together in the Bastogne and they take care of each other and they share everything, ammo, food, water, blankets. They say, you try to sleep, I'll watch the front. They put the other first. They're ready to lay down their life for their brother in arms because in that moment, they aren't two people. They are like one person. They identify with one another in that moment of mortal struggle. That's love. It's like when a team of firefighters enters a burning building. They aren't individual guys, each doing a separate job. They're one unit, and they look out for each other. They lay their own safety on the line for the sake of the other men. Why? Because they identify with one another. They have different backgrounds. They have different situations, different types of family. But in that moment, they are actively, intensely tied to one another, and it reaches down to the heart. It's an affection. It's a movement of the entire person. That's love. It's the active affection of identity with another. It's the thing that turns you and I into we and us. And it's this affection that occupies the apostles' attention in one of the most well-known, artfully composed passages in all of Scripture. Here is what this passage teaches us. Here's the message of this passage in a nutshell. Love is the essential, evident, enduring trademark of the Christian life. Love is the essential, evident, enduring trademark of the Christian life. This active affection is the trademark of the Christian life. And that breaks down into three realities. So this morning, let's consider them one by one. First of all, love is essential to the Christian life. Love is essential to the Christian life. Notice that Paul is not saying love is really important. He's not saying it's nice when people in church get together and they love each other. He's not saying love is one of those nice but not necessary things. No, he's saying love is absolutely necessary. It's a non-negotiable. It's essential to living as a Christian. It's a necessity. In fact, Paul often speaks of love as the essence of Christian ethics, the foundation of godly behavior in the world. He says, for example, in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Think of that. 
The law of God. You've read the Ten Commandments. You've read the law of God. How many commands are there? How, how uh, difficult is it to attain to the commandments of God? And yet Paul says, if you love your brother, if you love your neighbor, you have fulfilled the law. All the commandments are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's why it's not surprising that he places this passage right in the center of the fourth major section of this letter because Paul isn't going to the Corinthians. Remember, he's not saying, hey, you're doing something wrong. Do better. No, what does he do? He says, there are problems in this church. You're doing something wrong. Now let's consider some gospel truth that reshapes your imagination, that reshapes your thinking, and then we'll talk about how to apply it. That's what he's going to do even in this passage. So the point is love isn't nice but not necessary. It's essential, and he says this in three ways. Notice that, first of all, spiritual gifts mean nothing without love. Spiritual gifts mean nothing without love. The Corinthians were so obsessed with speaking in tongues. For some reason, they thought that if you were a really spiritual person, if you were a really godly person, that would come out in your life by speaking in tongues. So they had some misunderstandings about that, and Paul's already gone after them for that misunderstanding, and he's not quite done. He's going to come back to that in chapter 14. But here he says, uh, without love... Your speaking in tongues doesn't amount to a hill of beans. But Paul, wait a second, that's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That's a powerful thing. He says it doesn't matter. Even if you were to go so far as to converse with angels. Now, whether, he's, whether or not the Corinthians were actually doing that isn't really the point. The point is that the spiritual gifts are worthless without love. There are a lot of people in this church who have incredible abilities, and, and we all appreciate that. We, we all love that, whether they're spiritual gifts or natural gifts. But if you're not going to love us, then it's not worth much. You don't want to be married to a man who brings home a big paycheck but doesn't love you. You don't want to be married to a woman who keeps the house tidy and cooks gourmet meals but doesn't love you. That's torture. You don't want your kids to just get good grades and win trophies but not love you. Love makes it worth it. (laughs) Uh, Love is essential. It's necessary. Our abilities are worthless without love. By the way, secondly, so is our knowledge. Our knowledge is worthless without love. Paul says, if I have prophetic powers but no love, I'm nothing. You say, but Paul, wait a second. What if I really know a lot? Like, let's say for the sake of argument that I understand all mysteries and I have all knowledge, kind of like Daniel in the Old Testament. Like, I have these dreams and they reveal all sorts of things that nobody else knows and I have these conversations with angels. What if I have that level of knowledge? And Paul says, even if you did, which you don't, If you didn't have love, it would be worthless. You see, it doesn't matter how many books you read or how many dreams you have. If you don't have affection toward your brothers and sisters, if you don't love them like you love yourself, then that knowledge is worthless. In fact, I would go a step further. Sometimes abilities, sometimes knowledge can actually become idols in our life to the point where they keep us from loving 
brothers and sisters in the church the way that we ought to love. Now, it's not the fault of that spiritual gift. It's not the fault of that knowledge. It's that we've allowed that thing to puff us up to the point where we're so prideful that we don't love one another. So what I'm saying is beware. Beware of replacing real love, the essential affection of the Christian life, with the ability to serve or sing or teach or preach or with the knowledge of theology and Bible truth. Those things are wonderful, but without love, they're not going to help you or anybody else. Well, the Corinthians might have said, but Paul, I understand all that, but so-and-so is really committed, like radically committed to the church. They sacrifice. They give up everything they have. In fact, they've given up themselves for the sake of the mission. They sold their stuff. They quit their job. They gave away everything for the sake of the work of the gospel. And Paul says, okay, thirdly, even personal sacrifice is worthless without love. Even if you were to give up your body to be burned, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rack, Shack, and Benny. If you did that without love, then you would gain nothing. Now, the language in this third example here in, in verse 3 is very clear that what Paul is referencing is the judgment on the last day. Like, if I cash it all in and I become a martyr for Christ, what kind of reward am I going to receive when I stand before the judgment seat? And Paul says, if you don't have love, then you are not going to gain anything. You won't get a thing. Why? Because love is, is a, it's an essential, it's a non-negotiable. In fact, the Apostle John goes so far as to, as to put it this way. He says, whoever says, I love God, but hates his brother, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You don't have a relationship with God if you don't have love. You say, but I have spiritual gifts. Well, that doesn't make sense because you don't have love. If you don't have love, it doesn't matter. Even if that were possible, it wouldn't matter. But I have knowledge. But obviously your knowledge hasn't changed your heart because you don't have love. But I sacrifice every day for the Lord Jesus. But if you don't have love, it doesn't make a difference. Love is essential to the Christian life. Have you ever thought about why that is? Why is it that we can say, that love is so critical that without it, you have no reason at all to think that you're, you've been justified and that you actually have a relationship with God. Here's why. It's because love is what drives the reality of salvation in the first place. Like, think about the active affection between, the God, between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit going back to eternity past. God has always been love. Uh, Jesus describes this in John chapter 5. We've already mentioned the father, he says, shows me whatever he himself is doing. Now, think about that. I'm a dad. Many of you are dads. I have a son. Some of you have sons. So I know deep down that that is exactly what a father is supposed to do. Don't, Don't we know that, guys? Like, we're supposed to show our sons whatever we're doing. Uh, I'm supposed to show them whatever I'm doing. That's the sort of thing a good father used to do uh, in an agrarian context like Israel 2,000 years ago when Jesus was walking the earth. Uh, Fathers who grew olives and sold the the oil from the olives, they were supposed, if they loved their son, what they were going to do was show them how to work the soil, what time of year to do that, how to make sure that the water was, was just right, how to prune, how to pick and sort and squeeze the olives and strain the oil and sell it. 
Fathers who built fences and furniture showed their sons how to select the right trees and cut the timber and make sure you get the most out of that tree that you've just cut down and dry it for just the right amount of time and square up the boards and join them carefully together. That's a patient kindness that a father shows his son and the son carries it with him for the rest of his life. See, as fathers, we know what that love looks like. Sometimes when my son asks me, Dad, what are you doing? Uh, I lovingly show him. And sometimes, and I don't think I'm alone in this room as a dad, he says, Dad, what are you doing? And I say, go find something else to do. (laughs) Because I'm not the perfect father, okay? I know that comes as a surprise. But God the Father loves the Son. It's a perfect, pure love. It's a self-giving love. The Father literally grants the Son to have life in himself from eternity past. That goes beyond our comprehension. You cannot find a purer love than that. So when, just think, just pause on that for a second. Think about the love that God the Father has for God the Son, and then think about what Jesus says in John chapter 3. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That is love. The world, we think of that as a big place. John, when he uses the word world, he's talking about a bad place. The world, from John's perspective, is that crowd of unbelieving sinners who are jealous of the Father's glory and want it for themselves, those children of the Father of lies. God so loved that world that he gave his only begotten Son, his Son whom he loved, his Son with whom he shares his holy name, his identity, his Son whom he's shown whatever he's doing, the only one who was there from eternity past, the one who joined him in the work of creation, the one who shares his glory along with the Holy Spirit, who was present and active before anything else existed, that Son, and he loved the undeserving rebels in the world so much that he gave that Son. Without a love like that, we would utterly perish eternally. And it's that love, that sacrificial, active affection toward us, in spite of the fact that we deserved nothing but judgment, that willingness to call us by his own name at the cost of the life of of the Son of God, that love is what brings us into the family of God. So how can we say, I am a Christian, if we do not reflect a little of that love in our own life. You can't. If you don't, if it doesn't kind of show, then maybe it's because you didn't really get it. Maybe you don't understand it. Maybe you don't have the Holy Spirit. Because to have Christ, to have the Spirit means that you are loved beyond the boundaries of imagination, beyond any reasonable degree, beyond anything even the most righteous among us could possibly love somebody else. 
So if that's the way that you've been loved, if that's how the most wonderful being in existence has actively, affectionately pursued you, he's given you his own identity, his name, his seal, and it's impossible for that not to appear in your life in some way. If you don't have love, then you don't have Christ. You'd better see it or there's a major problem because it's the essential affection of the Christian life. Sadly, it would seem that for the sake of numerical growth, bigger budgets, greater attendance, etc., the church of Jesus Christ has, in some cases, sucked the love out of the church. We overlook a lack of love in someone who has a lot of abilities. We overlook a lack of love in someone who has a lot of knowledge or a lot of money to give because those things get people in the door. We carefully place people in groups where everybody already acts and thinks the same as everybody else in the group. So we're acting like we love each other, but really all we've done is sorted ourselves into these groups of people where we already get along. That's not how it's supposed to look. And so may it never be at Indian Creek Baptist Church that we trade in the love of Christ for something else. Because love is essential to the Christian life. Second, notice with me that not only is it essential to the Christian life, love is evident in the Christian's life. Love is evident in the Christian's life. We see this in verses 4 through 7 the heart of the passage in which Paul sort of paints a picture of what real love is, what real love is not. Uh, At a a very basic level, here's what we can say. Love looks like something. Uh, It's not just an idea. It's not just something merely to talk about. It changes the way that we behave. Uh, I've heard people say uh, love is isn't a feeling, it's a decision, it's an action. I think that's going a little too far. Uh, If you take the time to read uh, each instance of this word, love, the, the word is agapao in Greek, and if you Look up all those different instances, then you'll find it's, it's not just an action, it's not just a decision, it's not just a feeling, it's more than all those things. It's, a, it's an affection, it's a movement of the entire person. But I think what people are saying when they say love isn't a feeling is they're kind of calling out a reality that's true in, in all of our lives. We say very easily, I love you, but then we don't back it up by the way that we live. Talk is cheap. Show me that you love me. Show us that you love us. And just like words fail to kind of capture the beauty of a sunrise or the the thrill of a a mountain overlook or the coolness of the mist arising over a stream of snowpack, mere prose falls short of capturing the grand depths of this essential Christian attribute. So Paul sort of lapses into this series of couplets designed for memorization and meditation. It's one of these passages, folks, where I can preach about it, but until you've read it, until you've repeated that, until you've meditated on it, until you've really personally owned what this passage says, then it's very, very difficult for you to truly grasp what it looks like in your life. But here's, this, here's a translation by N.T. Wright that I think captures the beauty of what Paul is describing. He, says it, he, he puts it this way. Love's great-hearted. Love is kind. Knows no jealousy. Makes no fuss. 
is not puffed up, knows no shameless ways, doesn't force its rightful claim, doesn't rage or bear a grudge, doesn't cheer at others' harm, rejoices rather in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, love hopes all things, endures all things. It's bewildering to try to preach a passage like this because we don't really need explanation. We know what these words mean, and the minute we try to explain it, it's very easy to sort of explain it away. But consider where you've seen these qualities. Certainly Paul could not have written these words to a church in which he spent a year and a half if he didn't himself exhibit this kind of love, at least to a point. But where do we see these qualities most clearly? Where, where do we see them most clearly, most pristinely? In the life of who? In the life of Jesus. Think of the love of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus just before his arrest, just before his crucifixion, and this woman comes up to Jesus, he knows what's coming, and she walks up to him and she says, can you please make sure that when you come into your kingdom that my sons are seated beside you, one on the right and one on the left? Can you imagine the ignorance, the the arrogance of such a request? And yet, how did Jesus respond? Love is patient and kind. You remember when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the Mount of Transfiguration and revealed his glory, and he's flanked by Moses and Elijah, and uh, Peter is there, and he just can't keep his mouth shut. He always has to say something. And and so he says to Jesus, let's build a a, a temple, a shrine, one for Elijah, one for Moses, one for you. And Jesus waits for the voice from heaven. No, this is my son. Listen to him. He could have lashed out, but he waited on the voice of the father. Love does not envy or boast. Do you remember when the family of the dead girl laughed at him when he suggested that he might raise her from the dead. Did he turn around and leave? No. Love is not arrogant or rude. Do you remember when he went out into the wilderness alone to pray after a busy and exhausting season, and there he is praying, exhausted, just having fellowship with his father, and the crowds find him, And they beg him to heal their sick and teach them about the kingdom of God. Did he send them away or was he moved with compassion toward them because they were like sheep without a shepherd? Love does not insist on its own way. Remember how Jesus behaved on the lake shore after his resurrection. Peter had denied him three times. At the very moment of his deepest trial, Peter denied him. Not once, not twice, three times. And yet as they sat there eating the breakfast Jesus had cooked, he wasn't cold or vengeful or selfish. He simply shepherded his ashamed disciple. Love isn't irritable or resentful. How about when Peter pushed back against the notion that the Son of Man might suffer? He knew the agony that awaited him and must in his humanity have desired an escape from the miseries of the cross. He must have wanted at least a part of him to escape the misery, just like Peter expressed. And lesser leaders may have excused it or dismissed it or let it go, but not Jesus. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. What does love look like? Well, 
there are thousands of situations in which love has the chance to shine in our lives. Uh, It's certainly more than a feeling, but it's not less. It's more than actions, but it's not less. And Jesus is the perfect example of this love. And the way that we can love everybody else with that patience and that kindness and that selflessness is by remembering that that is how he loved us. We see this in glimpses in believers, imperfect reflections of the pure love of the Savior, but what evidence of love is present in our own lives. By the way, this is a package deal. There is no, hey, she's such a loving person, but she gossips all the time. No, love rejoices with the truth. Love doesn't do anything shameful. (laughs) It's not love. He's such a loving guy, but he has a hot temper. Okay, love is patient. It's a package deal. Where do we see the evidence of love present in our own lives? In fact, let's take a step back. Do we even allow ourselves to be in situations in the church where we have an occasion to be patient and kind and selfless and free from envy? Uh, Remember, this is a passage we read during a, a wedding ceremony, but this isn't primarily about the love between a husband and a wife. It's primarily about the love exhibited in a local church like this one. Do we put ourselves in situations where we're around people who kind of grate against us? Or just those people who are like us? How can you say that love is an evidence in your life if you don't live life as part of the body of Christ? If you're not a part of a local church, if you're just a spectator, you can't love people and not ever talk to them. Doesn't make sense. And in the church, we have all sorts. Rich people, poor people, men, women, children, old-timers. People who love the outdoors. People who don't even like to mow their own lawn. People who get up at 4 a.m. and are all chipper and cheery. People who would sleep till noon if you let them. Real people with all their messy quirks and annoying idiosyncrasies. And those who have the Holy Spirit are going to be able to exhibit love across these divides that exist and run right through the middle of the church. And if you aren't willing to be a part of it and kind of test yourself, then how can you exhibit love? As you can imagine, I I read a lot of books about church. Uh, There are a lot of books and podcasts out there about how do you grow your church? How do you make it healthy? How do you make it bigger? And I've seen a lot of church leaders take the stuff out of those books and try to apply it to their situation, all while harboring bitterness between the leaders and the church, or between the leaders and other leaders, or between the church members and other church members. And I'm telling you, there is no technique to make a healthy church, a growing church, unless we are willing to love each other. That's the only way. Does the church grow without it? No. But if people are loving each other, that's transformative. And, you, you, you know, it's surprising. We can put up with all sorts of deficiencies in the church if we love each other. Love is essential to the Christian life. Love is evident in the Christian's life. But in the third place, consider with me that love is enduring in the Christian's life. It's enduring. It's one of the few things that's going to last when everything else fades away, when all of this world burns up, love is going to still be here. This is the point that Paul makes in verses 8 through 13. Uh, A few weeks ago, we observed that some interpreters, you remember this, they look at verse uh, 10 
as a reference to the completed New Testament. That perfect thing is the completed New Testament. And therefore, when the New Testament is completed, then the gift of prophecy will no longer be needed and the gift of tongues will have long since ceased. I think the context of this shows that that's not really what Paul is focused on here in chapter 13. No, he's focused on the day when we're going to see Christ face to face. So as important as it is to understand that the apostolic age is not the same as today in some really important ways, that's not really what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. No, the point that he's making is that when Christ comes, a lot of things that are important now are no longer going to be important then. Even faith, even hope are going to be like childish traits that we can set aside. This is what he means when he says, when I became a man, I put aside childish things. He's not talking about personal, individual growth and maturity. He's talking about when the church age comes of age, Christ returns, and there is a change in the way that things are. 